with me to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Luke chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep this. We'd love for you to be able to read God's Word. We're going to just read four verses. Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. We do have the particular Lord's Supper today, so we'll just cover these four verses. So if your Bibles are open to Luke 17, I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse 1, and then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offense should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. By the way, these are not the words that you hear most of the world know that Jesus said. Right? You know, Jesus says a lot of really... Uh, soft things, but he also says some very firm things that get our attention. Better that this one may be thrown into the sea, that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Father, we ask now for your spirit to speak through your word. You and you alone be honored and glorified here this morning. Saints will be edified if those that don't know you would be drawn to you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Taking notes this morning, I titled our time in God's word this morning, Living Different. Living Different. Um, There's a lot of ways to live different. Some of those uh, people look for ways to, to stand out or to be unique or uh, to live in such a way that draws attention. But the Lord wants us as the body of Christ to live different in a way that just follows the quiet, gentle spirit of Christ, walking in the truth of Christ. And it just has that fragrance, that aroma that people look and say, there's something different about that person. There's something different about the way they live. There's something different about the priorities in their life. There's something different about the words that come out of their mouth. There's something different about how they influence people, the kind of impact they have when they walk into a room or into a setting. The Lord desires that we live different, that we be different. The Bible even says that we're to be a peculiar people. That doesn't mean you have to act weird. You just act like Christ, and it'll look different than most people are used to. And we'll look at three things in the text this morning uh, that, uh, that Jesus uh, unveils for us. First is the condition, secondly is the condemnation, and thirdly is the choice. The condition, the condemnation, and the choice. This condition he speaks of, he says that uh, it is impossible that no offenses should come. The word offenses here, it's from the Greek word skandalon. Uh, that was a, the word scandal on it was a movable stick uh, or a trigger or a trap. So it would be set in place and uh, it's a trap stick, if you will. And it would look like something, maybe an animal or something, a bear would grab it or something, but it would actually provoke a trap. And scripturally, the definition can also refer to any person or anything which is entrapped or drawn into sin or error. Does that make sense? So scripturally, the word means to actually draw people into temptation, error, sin. It's impossible, Jesus says, that offenses, that sins, it's impossible that offenses and sins shouldn't come. They will. They'll come like a flood. There's going to be evil. We all agree. We all know that, right? You watch the news every night. It's depressing. More killings on this side of town. More of this. More of that. Uh, another, another uh, you know, kind of scandal or something. There's lots of sin. There's going to be evil. There's going to be sin. There's going to be wickedness. There's going to be things, think about this, there's going to be things continuously in the world that offend God. You ever notice how people are just like, oh, I, don't, I wouldn't want to offend so-and-so. I don't want to offend anyone. What about not offending God? You know, we have an entire nation that doesn't have a problem with offending God, but actually, there a lot of people are offending each other too. We're going to get to that as well. But all these things that offend God will continue until when? 
until God brings an end to sin on the earth. There will be a day that that happens. The cross, now thankfully if you're born again, the cross has canceled out the sin debt, the sin penalty. Those things are canceled out by putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the cross. So everyone that's trusted in him, those things, the penalty of sin, the penalty of death, those things have been paid for and canceled by the Lord. But the presence of sin, the presence of sin, those of us who are saved, still the presence of sin is all around us and sadly still in us too. And its impact Sin's impact on souls and on the world remain until it's finally removed by Jesus at the end of the age. There will be a time... Don't you look forward to in heaven where you will never even have the desire to sin again? You can't remove that desire. Now, you, you, had, to, you had to come by faith in Christ and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But even after salvation... You and I still have sinful desires. Heaven, Jesus will remove, the, the complete desire will be fully removed. It'll be impossible for those in heaven to ever offend God. Isn't that great? But the presence of sin will still be here until Jesus finally removes it completely. Yes, the cross covers our sin, but sin will be completely removed only in heaven only at the end of the age, and he'll be removed from the earth. And Billy Graham said this, he said, there's a difference between sin, listen closely, there's a difference between sin and sins. Sin is the root, sins are the fruit. Sin is the root, sins, plural, is the fruit. There is an original sin that entered into mankind, and thus we all entered into death and condemnation before the Lord. But then after sin entered in, then sins, plural, mushroomed. All different kinds. Cain killing Abel was a good, good example. That had never happened before, right? Now it happens how many times on earth on a daily basis? Millions. So sins, plural, is the fruit. The continuation and proliferation of sins and offenses These things are the continuation of bad fruit that started in the garden with original disobedience, just not believing God, hath God said. That one little disbelief was the root, but everything else is the bad fruit of it. So Jesus said it's impossible that there won't be a continuation of offenses, a continuation of sin, continuation of being led away. Romans 1.30 even references inventors of evil things. Inventors of evil things. Thinking about adding to the laundry list of things that are already out there. The evil heart of man ensures that offenses will continue and that even they will multiply. It's interesting that as sin multiplies, God's kingdom multiplies at the same time, doesn't it? At one time, everyone in this room that were saved would have been a much smaller number. If you saw me before 1995, I'm not in this room because I'm not a believer. So even though while sin multiplies, God still multiplies his kingdom at the same time. But until Jesus brings an end to sin and wickedness on the earth, and he will do that someday, amen? He will absolutely remove it completely. But until that time comes, Satan will continue laying scandal on offenses, traps. It was the serpent that would lay a trap for who? Eve and Adam fell into it too. He'll continue to lay traps of deception, twisting God's word, twisting people's mind, twisting the view of things. To what? To lure people away and that they would continue to listen to their own flesh, their own desires, and tune out God. He'll continue to lay traps. He'll continue to lure people. But there are some that once they have kind of given themselves over and they will not follow God, they become so resistant to God, so given to sin, so given to self-deception, that they are used by the enemy to lead many others away. 
right? Some people have a gravitational pull that they've been given a voice, they've been given a platform, and they use it to draw other people away from God. They lure. The, Old, the New Testament calls these deceptive terms. They allure. They try and speak to people's natural, sensual desires, drawing them away. And this resistance, this deception, some become so resistant to God and so kind of willingly being used by the enemy that they bring many, many other people into destruction. It's one thing to jump off a cliff. It's another thing to get a bunch of other people to jump off the cliff with you. Right? You've heard it said, hey, you're going to ruin your life in life, go right ahead. But don't help, don't try and get my kids into it. Right? It's just parents thinking about bad influences. I remember one time I was listening to one pastor said, hey parents, remember your kids sometimes are the bad influence. That's true. We have to sometimes look at our own household first before we look at it. But nevertheless, peer pressure, influences, drawing people away. But some that have been so given help draw many other people away. Understand that some, in, some people influence many people. Some people influence many people. By God's, when God called me to be a pastor, I had no idea back at 9-11 that I was going to be a pastor. Six years later, I would be a pastor. I had no idea, wasn't looking for it. I really liked what I was doing. I loved the business world. I loved that kind of stuff. And Lord was calling me to that, but I had some influence there on things, but I believe I have a much higher accountability before God now as a pastor than I did then. Even though I had a measure of accountability, so do you. All of us have a measure of accountability, but I, had more, I have more now. But everyone influences someone, some people many. And the more people you influence, the greater your responsibility is. Amen? The more people you influence, the more responsibility you have. But everyone influences someone. Everyone in this room influences somebody, whether they know it or not. Everyone influences somebody. Parents influence children. Kids influence other kids. There's always some level. The question is, are we influencing them for God or for ourselves or drawing them away? Bad company corrupts good character, the scripture says. How is the church influencing the world around it? Not, I'm not just talking about Calvary Chapel. Think about the church in the United States. We have churches all over Richmond, over 400. How are we influencing this city? How about you and me? It's not, not good to look at everybody. Well, they are well, they over there. I just have to look in the mirror first. How am I influencing the city, my neighbors? And sometimes I'm like, man, I haven't even talked to my neighbors in a while. I've been too busy doing God's work. True. Lord will remind me of these things. You know, Hollywood influences millions, doesn't it? You realize Hollywood has had a worldwide impact? Worldwide. In India, they call it Bollywood. I mean, they, they, they mimic the name. That's had a worldwide impact. What's its impact been? Well, for the most part, that sin isn't a big deal at all. That's Hollywood's gift to the world. Sin is not a big deal at all. The music industry echoes the same thing. Not a big deal at all. Advertising influences millions. Coveting is just fine. And they prey on the nature that we're all born with. Give me more of that. Right? We're born with that nature. Go downstairs to the toddler. Serve there one week. The nature's already there. I actually saw um, an ad not long ago. It was, a, it was a car ad, and it said, Thou shalt covet. Just mocking. I mean, just flat out hey, let's just go ahead and tell them to covet. No more subliminal messaging anymore, right? Because there's no fear of the Lord. Our laws and our government influence millions of people. This is happening for decades now. Our laws and our government influence millions of people that killing an unborn baby for economic reasons or convenience is just fine. Not a problem. 
not even a life. That's a lie, but many people believe that lie. That changing the definition of marriage, or that adultery, or that divorce are actually good for society. None of those things are good for society, because they're against how God created the earth. And well, that's to express our freedoms. There is no freedom outside of Jesus, folks. Are we influencing truth? Are we influencing error? False religions are influencing billions around the world. Billions are following a false faith right into hell. Their leaders at the top, the leaders of top religions, do you realize that many of the leaders of top religions don't even follow the very religions they lead? They're some of the worst. They're at the very top of the kind of pyramid structure there, and they're empowered by Satan himself. Matter of fact, if you come here this Wednesday night, uh, we'll be in the book of Ezekiel in the third part of our study of ancient Tyre. Uh, we'll actually be looking at Satan or Lucifer as God describes him in the book of Ezekiel and his influence on kings, on nations, and on individuals and organizations. All the organizations. He has a hand on all of it and to the ruin of many. The Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, they had led the people. Now, Jesus, remember, he's speaking here, uh, and religious leaders are listening to him speak. And he knows that they have personally set scandal on traps of influence, bad influence, leading many people away from Messiah. Matter of fact, they told, you don't, do not believe in Jesus of Nazareth. Follow us. And these guys were full of all kinds of sin on the inside that Jesus could see. But they were leading people into sin and bondage. What did they focus on? They focused on the exterior. They were really clean. They were well-dressed. They looked really sophisticated. They had the air of double PhDs. Academic. Austere. Just kind of that uh, look that these guys are the pillars of community. By the way, a lot of people that look like the pillars of community, God sees inside the heart and are not the pillars of community. Amen? You can look great on the outside, but they were leading people. They were the religious leaders. They should have been leading people to the Lord. They were leading people away from the Lord. We have leaders in our own country that should be leading people to the Lord. They're leading people away from the Lord. This is happening in the church. This is happening in business. This is happening in government. And it's happening in houses where Moms and dads aren't leading the kids to the Lord. They're letting the TV lead them wherever they want to go or their iPad or their smartphone or whatever else. But the Pharisees, they focused on the exterior. They neglected matters of righteousness and purity. It was all an outward facade leading people to deception. We know from... Uh, chapter 16, we're back when we we're in chapter 16, verse 18. Remember Jesus said these words, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her is divorced from her uh, husband commits adultery. Jesus threw that in there because they had manipulated how Moses had basically been frustrated with the people wanting their own way and said, fine. But Moses wasn't saying, God gives you the right to divorce us. God gives you the right for any... And then we're talking about there are biblical grounds for divorce. I understand that some of you that have been divorced uh, under biblical grounds, but there's also non-biblical. And they were basically any old reason. Oh, I don't like the way she cooks. Oh, here's a certificate of divorce. Leading people into adultery, leading people into sin. What they had done is they kind of twisted and manipulated the law to their own benefit, to their own desires, raising their actual power base, if you will. And they taught other people that, hey, if we condone it, it's okay. And this is really the same thing that happens today. We have leaders today that say, if we condone it, you guys are okay to do it. It doesn't matter if man condones it. It's still not okay. Amen? They taught arrogance. They taught intolerance for the simple, pure faith in God. You know, a lot of people that just wanted to have a simple faith in God, they were rejected by these guys because they brought nothing to hey, They don't have much money. They don't have much to bring to the table. They're irrelevant to us. Whereas we as the body of Christ, if you come to Calvary Chapel Richmond, you don't have much money, we couldn't care less. We want to love you just as you are. Not about what you have. 
It's about what God wants to do for you and in you and through you. But they taught an arrogance. They were against a simple, pure faith. They lauded a complex, rule-driven hierarchy of man-made laws. Because when man makes things really complex, that, the people at the top are like, you're too dumb to understand this stuff, so just do whatever we say is okay or what to do. That's the way they set it up. That's the way they liked it. It was a pseudo of holy light. It really wasn't holy at all, but it was pseudo-holy light, and people were pulled into the system. Follow it. But what is the condemnation here? If you're taking notes, what is the condemnation? Jesus said it's impossible that no offenses should come. He's like, there's going to be sin. There's going to be deception. There's going to be a proliferation of sin throughout the world until he returns, but woe to him through who they come. What does that mean? Taking notes under condemnation. What is he saying? What does this word woe mean? Woe to him. Jesus said it's one thing that there's going to be a flood of deception. There's going to be a flood of sin. There's going to be a flood of people going off the cliff into destruction. But woe to the man who's leading it. This also ultimately speaks, you know, there'll be an antichrist that'll lead an entire mass of humanity off the cliff. Woe. What comes from the old English word of lament, wah. I don't speak Old English, I just speak New English, but it's translated from the Greek word, wahi, wahi. The origin of the word conveys an exclamation of grief, of sorrow, and distress. When you hear woe in the Bible, it's an exclamation of grief, sorrow, and distress. The same word is used 36 times in the New Testament, 36 times, not, that word is not used in the Old Testament, but 36 times in the New Testament. And it's sometimes rendered as a different word, alas. You ever seen that word when you're reading? Alas, A-L-A-S. Seven verses in the book of Revelation use this same Greek word, uahi, or woe, or alas. Seven verses in the book of Revelation. In four of the verses, it's rendered woe, and in three of the verses, it's rendered alas. In all seven passages in the book of Revelation, all Seven passages, it relates to intense apocalyptic judgment from God. All seven verses, intense apocalyptic judgment from God. So when Jesus uses these words, and you can see the imagery, you can tell it's apocalyptic because he says, one, woe to you, it'd be better that a millstone cast tied around your neck. By the way, if you tie a millstone around anyone's neck and throw them in the sea, they're going way down and not coming ever back up again, Right? And he's saying that this is an eternal thing. This is a definitive thing. This is the destruction of oneself. In Revelation 8.13, one of the verses where this word is used, he said, And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the, set, because the remaining blast the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. He's speaking of the the last three trumpets. In In the book of Revelation, you have the seal judgments, you have the trumpet judgments, and you have the bowl judgments. They get progressively more intense, which is hard to believe when you read it, because you're like, how could this possibly get more intense? And it actually does. It's almost like when you light a fire, you say, there's no way this fire could be any hotter. Oh, yes, it could. And it starts changing colors, you know it's actually getting hotter. Well, that's actually what takes place. And when it says, whoa, 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 Trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are yet to come. So the angel's saying, there's more grief, more destruction, more wailing coming at that time. You don't want to be here then, by the way. You want to obey God now and listen now and be wise now and be surrendered now. But what Jesus is expressing here, that if God's grace is spurned, Remember that the religious leaders who are leading people astray, those that are in his hearing, that are leading people to destruction, saying, hey, you want a certificate of divorce? No big deal. Hey, you want to do this? No big deal. You pay enough to the priesthood, you'll be fine. Right? Even the mafia, they used to actually go into confessionals and give big donations, right? Uh, Vinny got knocked off, so we want to pray him out of purgatory. Right? That stuff doesn't work. God doesn't have negotiations over what you gave or anything else, right? None of that stuff works. What Jesus is expressing here, 
that if legitimate grace is spurned, those who have heard the gospel, those who have heard all the Pharisees that could have come, all the religious leaders, could have all done like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and said, what what do I do to inherit eternal life? But if the grace is spurned and man chooses to continue offending God's law, offending God's holiness, offending his offer of forgiveness and true change, and rather he continues offending and harming himself and harming others, then judgment, anguish, and ultimately grief are inevitable. True? Inevitable. It's inevitable if you put your hand on a hot stove and leave it there. Serious things are going to happen to your hand. Inevitable. And so you'd be wise not to do that. And the Lord says it's wise to come and receive grace, not spurn the grace. Notice that Jesus points out, woe to him through through whom it comes. Why is that important? Woe to him. Now, he's not speaking of one individual, although, like I said, there will be an archetype, an antichrist that will lead many more than anyone else has ever led. But woe to him. Why is it important? Jesus says, woe to the person through whom they come. Well, Jesus is saying you don't want to be in that camp. He's saying you don't want to be in that camp. By inference... Here's kind of a refreshing thing. By inference, there are those who are not in that camp. That makes sense? Woe to him who they come from says that there's also people that these things are not coming from. I used to have a bad influence on my friends before I was saved. And my, like I said, if my parents thought my friends were the bad influence, trust me, I was the bad influence. I have no qualms in saying they never made me do things that I didn't want to do. In fact, it was working both ways. We were equal in corrupting one another, leading one another astray. But Jesus is saying you don't want to be in that one camp. By by inference, there are some that are not in that camp, at least not anymore. Praise the Lord. Amen? The laundry list of sin in, in the Scripture, and some as such were you, used to be there. You get to the place that if you've come to know the Lord and you're in his camp, you're no longer a conduit of sin and worldliness. You're no longer an influence of those things. You're no longer an inventor of sin, a champion of sin, a manufacturer of sin, and trying to convince everyone else it's okay to do. These are those that have been born again. Those who have been changed. Those that have been redeemed. It doesn't mean that they or we are now sinless. We know that's not true, right? It doesn't mean, Jesus is not saying, all right, so if you're, you're in the camp of Christ, you're no longer leading people into sin, that you're sinless now. We know that's not the case. But our sin nature has now been subjected to the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not under bondage as slaves to sin anymore. But of righteousness, Romans 6.13 says, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I used to think of ways I could sin. Now I think of ways to actually avoid even the temptation of it. Where did that come from? It certainly didn't come from me, and it didn't come from you. If you are born again too, that comes from the Lord. He puts it in your heart. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We avoid things that would cause us. We're not hanging out at 3 a.m. in a place that, you know, even football coaches say nothing good happens after midnight, folks. Right? Because we know. To avoid those, the Holy Spirit has given us wisdom to avoid these things. But causing others to stumble. Children. Causing children to stumble. Causing those you have authority over, responsibility of. Uh, causing those that are young in the faith. This little ones can speak to all of those groups. Does that make sense? Can speak to each of those groups. Little ones can be those that you have care over. Little ones can be children for certain. And those that are young in the faith. You know, I want to live my life that I would not cause my kids to stumble. But not only not my kids, your kids either. Or other young people in the faith. There's someone who's just been born again. Or even those that are still unsaved. As a pastor, I personally, I want to live a life like Pastor Chuck did. 
like Charles Spurgeon did, like A.W. Tozer did, like Adrian Rogers did. These were men that lived their whole life. They weren't perfect. They had mistakes. They had flaws. But they weren't by any means leading people into sin. Amen? They lived a life above reproach. The Scripture talks about that. Living a life above reproach. It doesn't mean, it doesn't say perfection. Above reproach is different. It means that we live a guarded life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And instead of staining the name of Christ, some of those men that I mentioned, well, they gave their entire life to lifting up the name of Jesus who draws all men to himself. That's what they did. That's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. That's what Moses did. That's what we're called to do. In the world, in its false religious systems, well, these systems are constantly leading people astray. And Jesus is saying, woe to them. Woe to the individuals. Woe to the, those that are actually bent on pulling other people into the same web of deception they're in or just lulling people to sleep. Because that's kind of the way Hollywood and the music, just lull people to sleep. Entertainment, entertain them to death. Numb them to the point that the only thing they, import, they think is important is so-and-so's new album which isn't important at all. You know, I actually like sports. This was funny the other day. I love sports more than I wish I did. So I actually have to like tune myself out at times because I like that stuff. But Sarah got on her smartphone. I didn't get on mine because I was, didn't look at it at that time. But it said, breaking news, Serena Williams defeated. Now, I like tennis, and Serena Williams is an amazing player. That's not breaking news, folks. It actually went across the ticker as if it was worldwide news. It's not breaking news if Tom Brady was exonerated. A couple weeks ago, that came across my phone. How is this breaking news? But where is the breaking news about things that break God's heart? Right? That's breaking news. But that doesn't come across because that's not lulling people to sleep. That would actually be waking them up. And Satan's in charge of these things. He runs all these systems. We're called to live differently. We're called to be a little bit of a light bulb in the room. We're called to be a, f- a breath of fresh air, actually bringing things that people need to hear. And I want to kind of come to a close with Jesus switching gears here. Because he does switch gears in verse 3. He says, take heed to yourselves. Now, the whole four verses is about taking heed to ourselves. All four verses, we should be taking heed. Are we actually a good influence? Are we living differently? Are we leading people just with our attitudes or disposition? There's a lot of ways we can be a good or bad influence in this world. But taking heed to yourselves, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. This does not mean rebuke in the sense that I've seen all the stuff that you've been doing against me, and uh, I'm going to let you have it. It's actually to come in love, to come and say, you know, something you said, And you really need to be prayerful about when you actually go to people because you don't go to people about every little hurt you get in life. Amen? You can actually do more damage than good by going to people about every little thing that ever happens. There has to be some real prayerful time with the Lord to know when and where you actually... Because people offend us all the time. And they don't know that they did it. And many times, God just tells me to... Zip it and not say anything. And thank, thank you if I've offended you and you zipped it and didn't say something to me. I appreciate that. Because we all will do things. But there are times that there's just something that it's not going to get resolved unless you go one-on-one to that person. Those times happen. He says, if, he forget, if you go and, and say, hey, this was really hurtful. I'm really having a hard time. and I know, Maybe you didn't mean it this way or whatever it may be. And he repents, forgive him. And Jesus said, but if he goes on to do it seven more times, you're like, oh no. I had a hard enough time with the first one. Seven times in a day, he turns saying, I repent, you forgive him. Now, we're not accountable if you're taking notes of this last section. The choice. We have a choice to make in everything. Um, this last section here, the whether people really do repent or not is between them and the Lord. We have, to, we have to just go ahead and give forgiveness anyway. There was a, uh, this story was told by J. Vernon McGee. He said a successful Irish boxer, he was converted, 
and he became a preacher. And he uh, happened to be in a new town setting up his evangelistic tent when a couple of uh, tough thugs noticed what he was doing. And they, knowing nothing of his background, they made a few insulting remarks. And the Irishman merely turned and looked at them. Impressing his luck, one of the bullies took a swing and struck a glancing blow on one side of the Xboxer's face. He shook it off and said nothing as he stuck out his jaw. The other fellow took another glancing blow uh, on the other side. At that point, the preacher swiftly took off his coat, rolled up his sleeves, and answered, The Lord gave me no further instructions. Whap! (laughs) That's the way we feel like reacting, isn't it? I prayed twice, I forgave you twice, there's no further instruction. Now it's time to launch counterattack. In Genesis 50, we see a picture. See, that, that's the way we want to respond. That's the way we feel like responding. We feel like, hey, I've endured two blows and some insults. I feel like I'm at least number four here. And Jesus couldn't have possibly meant seven, which actually, another passage, the seven is a repeating number. So more than seven. Oh, brother, huh? But in Genesis 50, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. In Genesis 50, you ever heard of this guy named Joseph? Anyone here ever been sold into slavery by their brothers? Didn't think so, right? Sold into slavery. This is not a, a little fairy tale. This actually happened. Sold it, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, spent years in a dungeon. It says in chapter 50, they sent messengers to Joseph before their father had died, commanding, saying, Say to Joseph, I beg, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of your servant, the servants of your God, of God your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also, they went and fell down before his face. Of course, the dream came true too, right? They fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. Joseph forgave his brothers. This is not the response of a pharaoh. Joseph was the vice pharaoh, if you will. He was, he was the second in command. He had all the same power as pharaoh. He was a vice roy to the pharaoh. This was not the way an Egyptian pharaoh... If you sold an Egyptian pharaoh into slavery, and he could get you back for it, off with the neck, right? But Joseph forgave all of his brothers. Why? Well, one, he did as the Lord commanded him to, because mercy is one of God's attributes, to be merciful to people, to give them a second chance. He's the God of not only second chances, but thousand chances. And Joseph was a foreshadowing of a future king to come, a Jewish Messiah who would be the king of kings, who would also allow those that bow before him, every knee shall bow, every tongue what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That those that were willing to humble themselves and bow, he would forgive them even though they didn't deserve, we didn't deserve, forgiveness. This was not the attitude of the Pharisees. If you crossed the Pharisees once, you were on the list. You ever heard people talk about their list? Your coworkers have a list. I can't say the word they use. You know it. They have a list. I have family members that talk about, you know, I have some older family members that talk about that list. If you get on that list, you're not coming off the list. But God isn't like that. Because we were all on his list of those condemned to hell, and he forgave anyway. If we're willing to repent, if we're willing to take the forgiveness. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, if he repents, forgive him. Proverbs 17, 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love. Do you know the scriptures say, that he who knows God has been born of love, and he who loves is born of God. If we do not love, we can't forgive. And if we don't forgive, we can't love. And if we neither love nor forgive, we're not what? Well, John gets really direct. He says, you're not of God. I didn't say it. Take it up with John. 
and the Holy Spirit told John to write it. They're good reminders for us. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, it is unforgiveness that causes churches to split. It's unforgiveness that causes marriages to split. It's unforgiveness that causes people to hold grudges for years. It's unforgiveness. I had two, my, uh, uh, two people in our family. Uh, uh, I was a kid growing up. I thought it was weird. They were sisters. They wouldn't even talk to each other. Refused to talk to each other. Neither would forgive the other. These things are common in the world, but should never be found in the body of Christ. That's why Jesus said, what does he say here? He says, if you're what? Brother. Here he gets specific to talking about believer to believer. Although we still have to extend this same kind of love to the outside world. But he said, even if you're brother, Christians who love each other still step on each other's toes at times. And not always on purpose. And even if it is on purpose, we still have to forgive. Amen? Amen. Hannah Moore said, A Christian will find it cheaper to pardon than to resent. Forgiveness saves the expense of anger, the cost of hatred, and the waste of spirits. Boy, people that aren't willing to forgive, they're the ones that end up with the ulcer. They're the ones that end up with all kinds of health issues. They're the ones that end up can't sleep, bitter. It's so much easier. Boy, if you haven't slept in three nights because you won't forgive, go forgive and you'll get some sleep. We hold on to the dumbest things, don't we? And who, you're going to, if you died next week, what did you really earn with it? Nothing. Jesus said, just forgive them. My, his peace will be upon you. And might I also remind you these words from Jesus? Matthew 6, 15. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Well, that one's pretty direct, isn't it? That's a great... When I first got saved, that verse was so helpful for me because it was one of those black-white verses that I didn't have to like, I wonder what the theology of this means. Right? There was no running from it. So you learn to forgive people because God says, I forgave you. We all want tons of second chances, don't we? We just don't like to give them. We like second chances. We just don't want to give them. Uh, I pull into a parking lot, and here's my first thought. Who did this lousy parking job? I, last night I pulled in, and, and, uh, and there was like this, this much space for the car. An immediate thought that came to my head is all the bad parking jobs I've done, where people said, who did this lousy parking job? Because we think one thing, we, we have kind of outs for us, but not for everybody else. Or you're uh, saying, man, I, if they had only left on time, then I think about all the time, that I didn't leave on time. And as it's coming out of our mouths, we remember God brings back, especially if you're, if you're saved, you, you'll, it'll come out of your mouth and you'll be saying something to your kids and you're like, I'm worse than them at this. What am I saying? <laughs> right? Pretty convicting, isn't it? We're called to forgive to make peace, and to bring peace. We're, help, we're called to do this to help soften people's hearts. That they would hear from the Lord through our willingness to yield. They'll never relent as long as we're like this. But if you yield, it actually shows forth the fragrance of Christ. The world will notice. People will notice. They may not say it, but they'll observe and they'll wonder why. They may not say anything in the short term, but in the long term, they'll still be noticing, why did you forgive me? Joseph's brothers, that doesn't make sense. We're to be living different in all of our relationships. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members. That's not easy with the family, is it? Family is some of the hardest to forgive, isn't it? I, uh, our old Pentecostal preacher down in uh, Charlotte, he said, family will mess you up. I could never get that out of my mind. It was so true. It was so laser point on. Family will mess you up. Pastor Tito was great last week, wasn't he? I was like, man, well, I wish I could preach like him. But anyway. <laughs> but your kids and your spouse, you're called to forgive them. I mean, people actually have horrible marriages just because they won't forgive. 
Is it fun living in misery? I don't, after a while I realized this is just really banging my own head against a wall. There's really nothing good in this. Just follow what God says. He's always right. It always brings peace and rest to us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. How many ways can the apostles plead the same message, right? Again and again they say, forgive, forgive, forgive. Why? Because you will get in each other's nerves. The person that will offend you the most in life is your spouse. The person you'll forgive the most in your life is your spouse. But most of them are really not big things. They're really petty. We just make them big. Amen? Most of them are not big at all. And you're like, later you're asking, why did I even care about that? Because it's our sin nature. Chuck Swindoll said, forgiveness is not an elective in the curriculum of life. It's a required course, and the exams are always tough to pass. That's true. It's a whole lifetime curriculum. You have to ask for forgiveness, too. You have to give it, but you, have to, you also have to ask people to forgive. If you never recognize you've offended people, then that's something that you really need to be in prayer about. Because if you can't remember the last time you said, hey, I'm sorry I said so, or, or maybe I was misunderstood, that's not a good thing either. Because the Holy Spirit will prick our hearts and say, give that person a call. Well, what if I didn't? doesn't matter. Make it right just in case. You shouldn't go, we shouldn't go around every time saying, you've offended me, you've offended me. But on the flip side, I think it's a really good thing when we think we've offended someone to go make it right. That you can never do too much of. Because that's actually heading things off at the pass. Amen? Heading it off at the pass is a good thing. Humble ourselves. That's all it is. It's just being humble. Being merciful. We're called to live different. And when we do, we'll influence the people around us. We'll influence the world around us. And they'll start seeing what they really need in us is the Lord Jesus Christ who's also forgiving and merciful. They'll see in us the life and hope of Christ. But guess what? We actually benefit too while we're giving them what they need, which is the light of Christ. We actually benefit too because there's no joy in living a life of hypocrisy, deception, deceiving other people, leading other people astray, resenting, bitterness. There's no joy in any of that life. I mean, even the do you realize that the world's, some of the world's top... Um, You've got these uh, just complete ruling wicked leaders that couldn't get a night's sleep because they have like eight body doubles and bodyguards all around them. There's no real peace even if you reach the top and you're a vengeful person. There's only peace and forgiveness and rest in the Lord. See, we hurt ourselves while we're damaging other people. But life lived differently a life lived leading people to Jesus, forgiving and leaving the results to God, that life brings joy. I'll close with Proverbs 16, 20. Great promise to us. He who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Amen? There's a happiness in saying, I'm going to be a lightning influence. There's a happiness saying, I'm going to be the forgiving person. I'm glad the Lord, at least for me, and I hope for you, has convinced you that this is living. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you taught us exactly how to live. You lived a different life. You lived a sinless life. And even though we, Lord, know that we could never live a sinless life, we still have been given the power of the Holy Spirit from you. To now, Lord, say no to the passions, the selfishness, and the rebellion that we were born with. We thank you, Lord, that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And we're going to come to a close and partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. But before we do, before I have the men come forward, I just want to take a moment. This message was primarily to Christians. But maybe you're here and you've never received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You know, other people may not forgive you. There are some people that will never forgive you in life, but Jesus still would. He's not like us. 
He actually, and not only will he forgive you, he actually died for us, laid on a Roman cross. Not lethal injection. This was not an easy death. We're going to remember the Lord's Supper in just a moment about the gravity of what he did. But if there's anyone here and you say, I, look, I, I have a lot of sin that I want to be forgiven of. And I need to know that God has received me. We just want to invite you to stand right where you're at. And want to pray a prayer with you and allow you to surrender your life to the Lord. I mean, it's a decision between you and the Lord. No one can make it for you. But I just want to present the grace that God has already paid for to you. Does anyone to just say, I, I want to receive that forgiveness. I want to give my life to Jesus. Stand right where you're at. Maybe everyone in here is born again. I can never take that for granted. Only God knows that. Just stand right where you're at. We'll pray with you. Don't worry about what other people think. Actually, they'll just rejoice with you. Because they wisely made that choice. Anyone at all. For those of us that are saved, just a reminder. The Lord loves us enough to remind us. These harsh words that Jesus uses, millstone, woe, well, they're just reminders of us of really how dark the darkness is and how genuinely frightening hell and a future without Christ really is. But it's also a reminder that he's delivered us from those things so we can actually have a heart of gratitude. Amen? And then when we actually receive the nature of Christ, it allows us to die to ourselves and to forgive people. And then when we're being a bad influence, we actually recognize it we can actually not only recognize we've been a bad influence, we can actually go to say to the person, I've been a bad influence. You know what? They'll actually think more of us then than they ever did before. Hard to believe, isn't it? Well, then they'll think that I'm not so perfect. Oh, they already know that. But they'll realize that we have a little bit of the humility that Christ has given us. Amen? Just take a few moments to talk to the Lord. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, just take that moment. I'm going to have the men come forward while the worship team cl- uh, quietly plays. And we just take a few minutes to search our hearts, to thank the Lord for His grace. And if you need His grace, it's here for you this morning.